You're listening to KHOL, and this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, something that's big and green in the Teton County backcountry may soon be helicoptered away. I think the best way to explain the billboard is it's kind of like the shrine of the past. And later, Jackson outdoor enthusiasts are making small steps that could have big impact in reducing waste. It's not like we have to do all of the right things all of the time, but a little bit of right every day is a step in the right direction. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Tyler Pratt. Backcountry skiers in Jackson are saying goodbye to a cultural relic. A green billboard covered in stickers on Mount Glory on the Teton Pass is slated to be flown away by helicopter. And locals aren't happy. KHOL's Hannah Mersbach reports from out in the field. When I heard the big green billboard on top of Mount Glory was going to be taken down, I dropped everything. In Jackson, a town fueled by backcountry skiing, this was breaking news. I might come up and handcuff myself to it when they're trying to take it down to try to stop them. It's a horrible thing. That's the somewhat sarcastic Evan Flack. He's actually my roommate and was the only other person in the parking lot on a sunny afternoon on Teton Pass at the beginning of shoulder season. It's absolutely devastating. I'm more of a recreational glory skier. I've gone up a couple times this season, but Flack is hardcore. He goes up and snowboards down a couple times a week. I still remember the first time I snowboarded down it, and I think that uh, it's a big reason why a lot of people choose to spend their winters out here. Other than Snow King in downtown Jackson, Mount Glory is arguably the easiest way for locals to get in their uphill steps during the winter. The reflective green billboard can be seen just before you get to the top. You think you've made it, but there's one final push. I think the best way to explain the billboard is it's kind of like the shrine of the pass. That's another avid backcountry skier, Sam Nearman. He says the billboard is a landmark on the 1,600-foot hike. I think each moment you pass it, you feel like you've made it. The billboard, which has been there for decades, was originally used to help connect landlines, but it became obsolete in the 2000s with satellites and other technologies. Later this year, the Forest Service says it'll be dismantled and flown away in a helicopter since nobody's maintaining it. Nearman's friend, Ben Rossiter, has been hiking the mountains since he was 11 years old. But he's not as nostalgic about the billboard. Apart from being a cool sticker holder, I really, it doesn't, doesn't faze me. Although locals lap glory before and after work, for many, the steep hike is still grueling. My head's usually down and I'm huffing and puffing when I'm up there anyway. It's hard to look up and see the damn thing. <laughs> but Rossiter is with a group of skiers on this sunny day who have a different take. There's a saying in Jackson, once you hike Mount Glory with someone, you're fast friends. But Until yeah. you go under the billboard. <laughs> <laughs> the Forest Service hasn't said exactly when the billboard will come down later this year, but the ski season is wrapping up. So when people take to Mount Glory next winter, it may be gone, and they'll need to find a new way to bond. Hannah Mersbach, K-12 News. You're listening to KHOL, 
This is Jackson Unpacked. I'm News Director Tyler Pratt. If you've been following the news recently, you may have heard about the feud between NPR and Twitter. The social media platform owned by billionaire Elon Musk added a label to NPR's account that called the broadcaster state-affiliated media and then later changed that to government-funded media. National Public Radio has said this is inaccurate and misleading and, in response, stopped posting content to Twitter. Across the country, some public radio stations are following suit, and this includes stations nearby in Colorado and in Idaho. Here at KHOL, we're taking a break from Twitter. While we are not an NPR affiliate, we subscribe to their journalistic standards and stand with them. And Twitter is also not a platform where our audience really gets their news. But our journalists will continue to use it as a place to interact with other reporters and listeners. And you can still find me on there at username PratAttack. But we wanted to use this moment to have a conversation about public media's role in journalism. I'm joined by Maeve Conran, Managing Editor for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, casually called RIMCOR, where KHOL is a member. Hi, Maeve. Hey, Tyler. It's good to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. So for anyone listening who's not familiar with RIMCOR, what is it and what's your role? Well, essentially, it's this coalition of very like-minded radio stations and they're throughout the Rocky Mountain region, mostly in Colorado. That's where it began several decades ago. But as you mentioned, KHOL is a member, so we're in Wyoming, also in Utah and New Mexico. And when I say like-minded stations, that doesn't mean that all the stations are identical far from it. But what is identical is that these are like-minded stations. They're the heartbeats of their community. They are community radio stations. Some of them are NPR affiliates, not all of them. Like you mentioned, you don't play NPR. Many are all news. Some of them are a mix of music and news. But what they're all doing and what makes them all like-minded and very similar is that they are there to serve the community. They're telling the stories from the community, whether that's arts, culture, news, what is happening at your local school board. They are right there embedded in their communities. And that's really what makes them very, very similar. I love what you said about being a heartbeat of a community. How long have you been involved with public media? What brought you here and what keeps you here? Well, I have been involved, oh my gosh, 20 years. I got involved with community radio when I moved here to Colorado. I'm originally from Ireland and we don't have the same concept of community radio as we have here in the US. And I remember I turned on the radio when I first moved here. My husband is from uh, Boulder. That's why we're here. And I heard these people you know, speaking in a way that I'd never really heard on the radio, that it was stories that I could really relate to because they were talking about something that had happened at the local library. And I was like, oh, I know that. This is all like really hyper local. This is super engaging. Then what blew my mind was that I was listening during a membership drive, a pledge drive, where people were saying, hey, you're what makes this radio station happen. So can you call in and give us some money? Now, this was a completely new concept to me. Where I'm from in Ireland, we have a model that's quite similar to the BBC, where you have a license fee for state media that isn't controlled by the state, but is funded by the state. But we don't have this idea that listeners can actually provide all of the funding to have a radio station that will then serve their community. So that blew my mind when that happened. I have had all my career essentially in public and community radio because I'm really, really passionate about it because I have seen time and time again in radio station after radio station, how important they are to the communities that they serve. 
I mentioned there that, that their heartbeat, but they're also like the kitchen table. They're the touchstones of the communities. They're where people turn to in times of crisis, whether it's a wildfire or a flood or COVID. And they really are institutions that have a tremendous amount of trust and goodwill in their communities. And, you know, we can talk about that in the context of this whole conversation, that there's a bit of cynicism that has emerged, to put it mildly, over the past few years in terms of media. And I see community radio as really part of the solution to that. We're going to come to that idea of cynicism in just a minute. But you did touch on funding. How are these RIMCOR stations funded? I think there's a little uncertainty out there about how we operate. Can you break that down? Well, the vast majority of the money is coming from the community. It really is. That is the core funding mechanism. And that actually is what gives these radio stations strength because it's from the local community. Getting back to what you mentioned earlier about Twitter and how it's labelled NPR is state funded. There is a small amount of money that comes from what's known as the CPB, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. It's minuscule and it's constantly under attack. What we're seeing right now with Twitter is has been happening over decades and decades. We have seen this play out where people might have seen archival footage of people saying we can't be funding Big Bird and really essentially talking about PBS. But really, there's a small pot of money that's made available to all public media and community radio stations through the CPB. Maeve, you touched on this earlier, but I just wondered if you could uh, dig down and have any examples of the role public radio plays in communities across the Rocky Mountains. Oh my goodness, I have so many wonderful stories and I'll try to keep it concise. But when I was the news director at KGNU, which is a community radio station in Boulder and it serves the whole Boulder, Denver area, we're coming up on a 10 year anniversary of a flood that absolutely devastated the northern part of Colorado, specifically in and around Boulder County. Entire towns had to be evacuated. There were airlifts. I mean, it was like something, it was a thousand year flood it was described as. And people were calling the radio station saying, I'm in my car, I'm on a road somewhere, all the electricity has gone down. You are literally the only source of information. And we realised very quickly that we were and how important it was. But then as everything emerged and unfolded over the following days, people were still turning to that radio station, not just for the emergency information, what is happening, but really as a touchstone to say, I need to connect to people living through this. This is something devastating our community. And I want to tune in to hear the voices from my community, the authentic voices, my neighbours, people who are also in similar situations. And so it really became apparent to me that in times of crisis, natural disasters, and unfortunately, there are more and more of them, people turn to it for information, but also as that touchstone to hear voices from neighbours, to hear how can I help if my neighbour is going through this. But I want to be comforted by knowing I'm part of this community and there are other people out there. Wow. Like you said, there is media distrust out there. I worked in breaking news in a political battleground state for three years during the pandemic, and I covered the election campaign of former President Donald Trump. And at events, I saw firsthand him foment media distrust. And people I spoke with said they no longer subscribe to quote-unquote mainstream media. It can feel like we are at a precipice with many Americans and their distrust of the media. Maeve, how can public media help rebuild that? Well, I do think getting back to what I was saying, that because they are the centrepiece in so many ways of the community, there's a level of trust in community radio and public radio because they're telling these authentic stories from the community. The level of trust that 
is there for that type of media is not there for other types of media. So I do have a lot of faith in that, particularly when I hear stories coming out from radio stations and I hear it all the time how people say, yeah, you're who I turn to when I, I need to know the facts of what is happening. The other thing, though, as well, that we need to just mention is that so many parts of the country, particularly rural America, are actually in a news desert. We're seeing massive closures of local newspapers. In fact, I think there's so many statistics. Pew Trusts have done all kinds of analysis on this. That, and the majority of papers that are being lost are in rural communities. So to have any kind of news coverage is vital. And when it is in these community serving community institutions like community radio, because they're mission driven, right? They're not for profit. They're not out there to get clicks. They're out there to serve the community. I think that inherently builds up a level of trust. So I have actually a huge amount of hope for the future of public radio, because also the power of storytelling and the power of the human voice is just something that will always be with us. That means radio is always going to be with us. So I do have hope for the future of public radio, and I think it serves a tremendous role as we are rebuilding trust in media, because we need to be telling authentic genuine stories from communities and we need to be educating our communities on what's happening locally because that's where so much of change is happening it's where so much is playing out you're living right through it in Teton County the eyes of the country were looking at you in terms of the recent decision around Wyoming's abortion ban but also you're telling us the stories about how Teton County is is tackling recycling and sustainability for Earth Day. We're hearing about the bighorn sheep and what's happening there. I mean, these are really important stories and we're hearing them through community radio. So I think it plays a huge role in rebuilding trust in media, but also just educating people on what's happening, whether it's the big political stories, whether it's the climate crisis, whether it's what's happening in a school board. People will continue to turn to public radio and community radio to get those stories. Maeve Conran, Managing Editor for Rocky Mountain Community Radio. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Tyler. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Tyler Pratt. Jackson Hole is gearing up for millions of visitors this summer, and with that comes a surge in trash. The amount of waste that one of the nation's premier outdoor destinations manages has skyrocketed over the past few years. Some local businesses that help people enjoy the outdoors are trying to innovate ways to curb the environmental impacts of tourism. KHOL's Emily Cohen has more. It can be a love-hate relationship. 50% of the local economy is based on tourism. But last year, in a survey led by the Jackson Hole Travel and Tourism Board, more than one-third of respondents expressed concerns about how the influx of visitors affects the environment. Instead of, you know, pushing back on that, but embracing it and being able to come up with clever and efficient ways to allow tourism to happen and function here without it damaging our local communities. That's Tori Parker, the founder of Teton Lunch Counter. She recently started providing meals for guides and outfitters that are zero waste with reusable stainless steel containers and lightweight silicone lids, as well as food sourced locally in the valley. 
And I thought, gosh, well, our number one economic drive is tourism. And all these people are coming from all over the world to Teton County to see our wildlife and our mountains and our rivers and our streams and go fishing and enjoy what what we all live here to do. And in doing that, they're creating a lot of waste. Parker says that businesses would often just go to the local grocery store and buy prepackaged sandwiches and salads. Those plastic containers are not recyclable here. And Teton County doesn't have a landfill, so all the waste is trucked out of town. But it has a goal of recycling or composting 60% of its waste by 2030. Still, the head of Solid Waste and Recycling recently said we're not even close to meeting that goal. Parker says she hopes her growing business Teton Lunch Counter can help reverse that trend. We calculated that we prevented 16,000 single-use plastic containers from landing in the landfill, which is amazing. It was our first summer, but this summer we had 12 clients and we are expected to keep about 40,000 single-use plastic containers out of the landfill. She's not alone. Nearly a decade ago, Patrick Collins started Teton Backcountry Rentals out of his living room in East Jackson, mostly loaning out tents and camping equipment. But, he says, it became clear that cans of bear spray were something people were also looking for. It can be expensive to buy, but cheaper to rent. Bear spray has an expiration date on it, and it also has a weight on it. And so... From a simple visual inspection and weighing the can, we can tell if the can has been sprayed or not. So a few seasons ago, he started a program at the Jackson Hole Airport where people can rent bear spray. And after their trip, they can drop it off on their way home because they can't bring it back on the plane. We're creating a financial incentive for folks as well as an environmental incentive. And so if somebody can come here rent something for roughly half the price or less than it would cost them to purchase, and then also get an education about the thing that they're renting, they're going to make that choice. And a bonus for that financial incentive is also helping to keep bear spray out of the landfill. Standing in his shop north of town, Collins is gearing up for a busy season. He estimates that before the airport rental program started, the number of discarded cans was five times what they are now. There'd be dozens of cans a day recycled at the airport before we started renting. And then once we started the rental program, people started getting educated about what we offered. People at the airport started spreading the word as well as Uh, to other local businesses, and that number quickly came down. And so that was the goal of the program, was to reduce the amount of cans that got purchased in town and then recycled or discarded at the airport. Last summer, Teton Backcountry Rentals collected approximately 1,000 cans as part of the airport TSA drop-off program, approximately three-quarters of which were able to be reused. The rest needed to be recycled, either because they were expired or because they had been sprayed. Teton Backcountry Rentals also works with Yellowstone National Park at a number of drop-off locations. Now, it is almost a no-brainer to rent bear spray instead of buy it. 
Little steps to combat waste may be making an impact in Jackson Hole. Recent local data show the total amount of landfill waste went down in 2022 after several years of spiking upwards. But the region continues to face other issues with trash, largely around construction and demolition waste. Local officials say they are working to address it. But Tori Parker with Teton Lunch Counter says small actions can still add up. It's not like we have to do all of the right things all of the time, but a little bit of right every day is a step in the right direction. And making these conscious decisions when consuming can really help all of us reduce our waste. The area's Travel and Tourism Board also recently created its first Sustainable Destination Management Plan with goals around reducing the environmental impacts of tourism. And going into its first summer season with a plan in place, there are hopes that these efforts can help keep Jackson less wasteful and more wild. For KHOL, I'm Emily Cohen. You're listening to Jackson Unpacked. Seemingly endless adventure awaits out in the Teton backcountry, and with that can come misadventure. Outdoor enthusiasts can frequently find themselves miles out of service and in need of rescue. Local podcast series, The Fine Line, digs deeper into those stories, bringing together both survivors and their rescuers. And a new season is underway. Its host, the Search and Rescue Foundation's Matt Hansen, spoke with KHOL's Hannah Mersbach about what he hopes to bring to listeners. We feel that by sharing these stories of accidents in the backcountry, we can really start to help people learn from other people people's mistakes, the decision-making that happens, uh, risk versus consequence. And also, we can really shed light on the dedication of the Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers and other partners like Jacksonville Ski Patrol and the Jane Lake Climbing Rangers who respond to so many of the accidents here in Jackson. Looking at this season, what moments stand out to you? Well, I'd say that every episode is unique and every episode tells its own story about an accident here out in Western Wyoming. You know, we go into a particularly frightening horse accident uh, deep in the backcountry of the Jedediah Smith wilderness. Two women, two friends, uh, two local women were going out on a horse pack trip and they were about nine miles from the trailhead when the horse that one of them was riding stumbled on a rocky steep section of trail and made a bad step and rolled on top of one of the riders. Let's take a listen to an excerpt from that episode. Here's Terry Evenson. I have to tell you that moment, you know, she fell on me and got up, but it was just this moment in time that I'm like, am I alive? <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, I'm alive. And I'm like, okay, I'm, am I paralyzed? Cause I knew I would, something wasn't right. And I moved, looked down at my boot and I saw my boot moving when I wiggled my toes. I'm like, okay, you know, right? And then, you know, the horse is still kind of running off and Brit's up there going, you broke? And I'm like, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it wasn't, it was just numb. I was just numb. And I knew that I, I just felt like paralyzed. Wow, that makes my palms sweaty just listening to that. 
I know this episode in particular really speaks to the importance of having a rescue helicopter on call. And I know you you hear from the rescuer in this episode. Why is it so critical to also be hearing from those rescuers as well as those people surviving these accidents? Well, it's important, I think, on numerous levels. And, and you know, one of the things is that we go into is that the volunteers with search and rescue are not they're not sitting at the hangar waiting for a call. They have families, they have jobs. And when a call like this comes in, they stop what they're doing and get to the hangar as fast as they can. And and in this instance, in order to get a helicopter, they had to first request it through the Teton Interagency Helitac, which has the helicopter on contract during the summer for rescues in the park and to fight fire. And if this ship is available, they're able to use it. And so in this case, the ship was available and they were able to assemble a team and jump in the helicopter, but they didn't really know what they were going after because the women had an old spot device that they just pushed for an SOS signal. The women didn't know if the signal went out properly and the volunteers at the same time didn't know exactly what the issue was. And so they get in the helicopter, fly out to the location where the spot came from, and at that time, they have to figure out exactly what to do. It's almost like on the fly when they are finding a patient, figuring out those injuries, and then the best course of getting that person out of the backcountry to higher medical care. It sort of helps provide the perspective of not just the person who is injured, but also how the volunteers are able to solve these very difficult, challenging problems. Yeah, that's a really important perspective to add in addition to the ones of survivors. Another one of your episodes focuses on an avalanche in Grand Teton National Park in January on Albright, where one snowboarder had a really close call. What are your takeaways from that story? Decision-making in the backcountry, you know, group dynamics among friends, issues of preparedness, and also just coming forward to share stories. And that's another really big part of this podcast is we feel like we can create space for people to come on and share their stories of vulnerability and making mistakes. And and by allowing that to happen, by giving space for those conversations, um, we can all learn from those and kind of apply those lessons to our own lives. What do you think that these longer length conversations can provide to those survivors themselves? You know, when we reach out to somebody and invite them onto the fine line, we understand that when they are coming in, that they're opening themselves up. But in almost every case, and I could say that in every case that I've been involved in, when someone has a traumatic experience in the backcountry and they come in and they they talk about that experience, um, often with one of the first responders that came to their aid, it really does help them kind of close the circle for what happened on that what was a really bad day for them. And I think that for so many people who are able to share their stories, they find value. And I think that audience members and myself too, personally, like I think that we're able to find value in helping other people avoid a similar situation in the backcountry, And that it just builds on our own level of experience that we can then lean on when we're getting ready to go out in the mountains and hopefully have a wonderful day because it is such a wonderful thing to do to be in the backcountry with your friends. 
That was Matt Hansen with the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation talking about the new season of his podcast, The Fine Line, which is broadcast on the KHOL Airwaves. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band, Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL, Jackson Hole Community Radio.